Okay, good morning everyone. Welcome to another new Energy Chinwick with myself and Charlie Retton. Hi Charlie. Yeah, good day, good day everyone. Good day John. Okay, so it's sort of getting towards the end of the year um, and I think last year, I can't remember exactly what we did, we did something like our top five of the year. Um, so we thought we'd do something similar um, today. Probably not quite so many topics. We'll um, concentrate on a, a fewer, a fewer number, but maybe go into them in a bit more, bit more detail. Um, and also, we—I I don't know about you, Charlie—but trying to kind of review the year would be would be an almost impossible task, because so much has been going on. Um, so we've tried to—we've sort of each just picked out three things from the year. We're not uh, certainly—I'm not suggesting they're the kind of only ones or by far the most important. I've kind of tried to pick out some themes that I think have kind of wider implications and so on as well. So again, when you were thinking about your three, what were your thought processes, Charlie? Yeah, I mean, I suppose uh, without uh, wishing to overshare with our listeners, obviously one of the obvious thought was to perhaps uh, have an analysis of our favourite uh, mince uh, pies and uh, do a little bit of under the bonnet. Uh, <laughs> but, but perhaps that would be uh, not, not in anybody's best, uh, best interest. So we did stick to... Uh, things that we uh, perhaps know a little bit more about, so perhaps yes or not, perhaps not. Uh, but I did come up with three, uh, John, that I thought might be of interest to you. One, and obviously it's been such an exceptional year, and uh, especially for, for for those of us in the centre of the energy uh, transition. But the three that I came up with, I tried to go a little bit counterintuitive. So I, th I thought I would have a look at grid balancing. I know we've touched upon grid in the past. I thought it might be nice to have a look at floating wind and the synergies with hydrogen, and where mm. is the hydrogen going to be produced with floating wind? Uh, and also, I thought um, something on the Gulf of Mexico might be nice. Um, there's been stuff, uh, I've put stuff out there on the Gulf. It's got a remarkable uh, response from various stakeholders. And I thought it'd be nice just to spend a few minutes just to see what's going on in the Gulf of Mexico, if anything, and what opportunities, if any, uh, might be uh, might be out there. Okay, and my three are going to be... Um... <clears throat> dispatchable renewables, so in particular renewables plus storage um, and out-competing thermal plants in particular. Um, I was going to look at um, what I've kind of generally themed kind of oil and gas expertise going into renewables and there's actually a few examples of that from geothermal to carbon capture to various other things so um, as a general theme and then the final one actually was a it's kind of a bit less, a bit more obvious, I suppose, but the EU energy integration strategy, I thought, was particularly uh, relevant, um, in particular because of kind of what it, the implications that it, it brings and, and what it says. So, um, yeah, so quite a good a, a random and wide ranging selection, which will hopefully, hopefully interest people. Um, do you want to start with one of yours? Um, should we start in the Gulf of Mexico? That sounds yeah. off our normal territory. Yeah. Okay, yeah, it is a little bit. We, yes and no, because we were out with uh, with Boehm, weren't we, uh, a few years ago now, and we did get some vibe as to what was happening. And it, it was largely centred around, I suppose, the northeast coast and perhaps uh, California. But coming through on uh, on the blind side, if you like, there's one I've been tracking, and that is, um, funnily enough, in the Gulf of, of Mexico. As we know, um, I suppose the bigger picture is it's big. Uh, there's a lot of oil and gas interests, a lot of European oil and gas uh, interests already out there and um, of course it's in a hurricane zone as well so there are a few challenges if you were looking at um, to transition if you were thinking of transition and if you were to transition uh, what would you transition uh, to so I suppose my opening question or my opening remarks would be that we've heard people like BP, Total, Shell um, talk about um, the move to net zero and that often involves uh, a degree of offshore wind possibly with or without hydrogen 
And I suppose I'd ask for your initial thoughts. Uh, if you were thinking of the Gulf of Mexico, thinking that these global companies think on a global basis, they don't just think, well, we're a Dutch company, we're just going to stick to Dutch waters. If it's energy transition, it's going to be global. Would you think, therefore, that the Gulf of Mexico would be um, a part of that energy transition? And if so, how would it be achieved? Yeah, well, I mean, the first, my first thought was, <clears throat> one that you raised, was hurricanes, really. Um, I know it's been talked about a long, long time ago, if you look at wind resource maps, for example, of the states, uh, the the East Coast, the West Coast and the Gulf of Mexico all have a fantastic wind resource. Um, the East has tended to start because it's got nice flat continental shelf. The West hasn't because it drops off into deep water straight away. And the Gulf was always tricky because of hurricanes. So, so there's certainly potential there. Um, I'd be interested to know from your perspective, what they're doing. Yeah, instead. I suppose on the hurricane side, I mean, it sounds very scary. Indeed it is. Uh, but we used to get this with uh, with earthquakes for the onshore turbines. Are they type tested to uh, withstand uh, earthquakes? And uh, the answer, uh, rather reassuringly, is uh, is yes. Uh, I developed um, uh, up, up in Scotland with Japanese uh, counterparts, and obviously they had similar uh, typhoon-related uh, issues in the Far East, and they made some giant... Uh, uh, strides. I believe in the United States that uh, testing is undergoing. Uh, it, it's, it's on the um, the initial um, thing. But I think there's a place, a facility at Boston, would be perhaps put some trial ones out there and and, mm -hmm. and see what happens. Uh, perhaps um, have a have a test bed area. You might want to look at the most extreme site or something that allies with with that to give them a real workout. We had this on uh, Scotland. Obviously, when I was Isla project manager, we had. Uh, I'm not sure what the hurricane force is but we had 127 mile an hour winds off the coast of, uh, of Isla uh, and we had a test facility at Hunterston which wasn't uh, a million miles away so I think some of the testings are already being uh, done or in train uh, and I'd be interested to see whether there are any updates coming from mm. the Far East and from the American um, yeah, facility because there's, there's no point uh, thinking about a rollout unless unless it's safe and uh, of course mm. absolutely hurricanes top of that list. Yeah and they'd updated the the IEC standards and uh, were updated they include now some uh, <coughs> more extreme um, <coughs> specifications and that was very much driven by the far east and typhoon stuff um, but yeah I, I don't know how many have deployed uh, be interesting to see it's kind of one of those weird it's kind of one of those tricky risks from a financial point of view because it's <coughs> it may, nothing may happen for 10 years but then if you get a kind of category five sweep through there's a danger that you suddenly lose half your turbine so it's kind of one of those tricky to evaluate yeah risks. it's funny you say that i mean um prior to fukushima people forget that there was actually an offshore wind farm uh off japan operating in fukushima at the time and of course the prevailing wisdom from the incumbents was that would be wiped out any tsunami uh, would knock out the offshore wind farm uh, couldn't work in reality, uh, I think only one turbine out of the array was uh, implicated. The rest uh, kept spinning, which is not really been it's not getting that much um, um, kind of kind of publicity for some uh, strange reason. But I think the track record actually is um, is pretty good. So I suppose that, I suppose any prudent uh, investment <laughs> scenario would be trial them, trial them yeah, in yeah. extreme conditions, put put some off the west of Scotland where they're going to get battered. Hunterston really sadly gone now, but uh, there must be. Uh, I suppose the upside of the, that force of wind is if you do get them uh, spinning, my word, the uh, production would be uh, phenomenal. The cutout speeds are getting the uh, the generate from much lower speeds than they used to mm. and much higher. So I suppose, given that caveat, yes, we need to make sure these things work. If you're then to push on and say, well, actually, assuming that you can get some kind of machine to be reasonably resilient, what would you think? 
of the bigger picture. I've heard figures of 500 gigawatts of offshore wind potential alone, given the fact that the UK, the world leader, has taken 20 years to get to um, 10 gigawatts. Would you, would you think that old... Um, that old adage that everything really is bigger in Texas is is starting to <laughs> starting to apply, or is this just fanciful? Well, I mean, I, I, you've got to separate out potential. I mean, you could have a potential figure for the UK, which was enormous, I'm sure. Um, so it'd be separating out potential from actual deployment. Um, I think the timescales, yeah, it'll be interesting to watch um, the testing first before rolling out. Um, I guess the other challenge would be, and I guess it ties back with the. the kind of what are you going to <clears throat> export electricity or are you going to do something else with it because another challenge i know a, a challenge in texas with onshore wind has been grid capacity so yeah. the idea of suddenly plugging 500 gigawatts of offshore into the grid we talked with dr Cato, didn't we a few weeks ago mm -hmm. and we said do you think that actually constraints actually represent an opportunity for other techs such as um, hydrogen uh, I know that the Texans are watching Project Acorn uh, in the Scottish one off uh, St. Fergus very, very closely. And that obviously is a combination. It's, uh, it certainly involves carbon capture uh, and storage, and it certainly involves hydrogen. So I suppose I will be watching <coughs> just to see whether the, the tectonic plates align. Uh, mm. I don't think it's any, any means uh, uh, there yet, but I do think that there's um, pe people will look at how much life is left in the existing oil uh, and gas fields that are already there. Could they be used for something else? Is this um, is the, is this net zero agenda? I mean, I think in the Gulf you've got your shells, you've got your equinors, all the people that have lined up to uh, aggressive net zero targets, uh, and a big opportunity as well. Five hundred mm -hmm. gigawatts is something to uh, to go about. So I, I don't claim to have the answer at the moment, but it's just one that uh, I did put something out there, and I've just been taken aback by the amount of, uh, of respect. Not all of it favourable. I'm <laughs> 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 not, not everybody. Uh, not everybody embraces uh, uh, yeah. change, and uh, it's a big mindset change, isn't it? I suppose if you've got mm -hmm. an industry that's lasted a hundred years, and suddenly people are saying, "Well, actually, you know, <laughs> should you be thinking about the future?" Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, there are political changes, obviously, in the United well, States. I was going to say that the other big change in the states is going to be um, <clears throat> after January, um, what how much what the agenda is and how much of that can be pushed through, I guess, will have a big impact on the on the Gulf and what happens in the Gulf. Yeah, for sure. Okay, do you want to, do you want to pick one of your, your three? Yeah, so <clears throat> sticking with kind of renewables. Um, <clears throat> yeah, solar and storage. I mean, two things that have been continuing to plunge in cost. Um, and there's been a few, there's a few interesting tenders. There have been some already in previous years where uh, solar plus storage facilities had been out competing gas, for example, for peaking plants in the, in the States. Uh, one that really caught my eye was sort of at the front end of this year, um, back in February, I think it was, uh, where there was a tender in India, <coughs> of all places, um, where it was, it was a big one. It was 1.2 gigawatts. <coughs> Um, the the requirement was to secure, I think, 600 megawatts of capacity for six hours, <clears throat> but day ahead. Um, and it was renewables for storage. It was a mixture, actually, of um, <clears throat> there was some battery and there was some pumped hydro in there as well. But it was significant because in, in, a, in a market like India, which has been obviously very much dominated by coal, <clears throat> it, it was very much about starting to get away from this idea that you need thermal, you need coal plants to provide this um, this capacity. And in fact, the prices that came in were lower than a uh, an auction at the previous, end of the previous year, which had been for thermal coal plants. It was lower in cost. And also, 
importantly, if you're a policymaker, it was much longer duration. It was 25-year contracts rather than three-year contracts. And so that was kind of one example, I think, of making the point that criticism of renewables has, has generally been, oh, well, we still need thermal plants to provide security of supply and capacity. Um, and that was an example. And as, as I say, I think it's significant that it was in, in a market like India, uh, where basically was saying, well, no, we don't. You can start to we can start to push out coal, and we can start to secure capacity uh, by combining, um, in particular, solar with storage. So, and there's yeah. been a lot, a lot of yeah, other. Yeah, that's really that's really storage. interesting. I'm I'm coming across stuff in the Middle East as well, which seems to echo uh, that. They're actually going into the heartlands now. Uh, you think of uh, of coal in India, which uh, uh, you mentioned the uh, the, the seismic uh, change there, and also in the home of oil and gas as well in the Middle East as well. They're now starting to look at uh, solar. And uh, storage. The storage in India would be battery. I take it. Uh, 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 battery. No, that one was a mix. Some was battery. Some was pumped hydro. In fact, I think okay. a bigger okay. chunk of the capacity for that one was pumped hydro. So. Yeah, obviously they've got the mountains, haven't they? I suppose mm. in the Middle East. I'm not. I'm not quite sure. It's perhaps Morocco or somewhere like that might have a, of a, <laughs> a kind of a hydro element. Other 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 countries might not. Do you know what kind of prices uh, they were coming in at for the for the mix? Um. Ooh. Off the top of my head, no, but it was some. It was something like, was it five cents per kilowatt hour or six cents per kilowatt hour? <clears throat> Can't remember exactly, but it was yeah. it was along those lines. It was, yeah. and as I say, it was significant because it was actually a little bit cheaper than a similar tenders that had come in previously, which were thermal yeah. plants, <clears throat> and yeah. and also a big advantage was the thermal tenders were only three years guaranteed okay. prices these are 25 years guaranteed okay. prices okay. so it's an example not only that you can do it but you can also do it at a more and not only necessarily a lower cost but at a predictable cost because obviously with thermal plants you've got to think about well what's the cost of the fuel going to be in in the future so yeah. <clears throat> as i say i picked the indo one because i i thought that was the it was significant because it was cold but there's been similar examples with gas i mean i've said i've said a year or two ago, um, I think ultimately um, every solar power plant that gets built will have storage of yeah. Some, yeah. some duration attached to it. It's just yeah. kind of an obvious thing to do. I suppose storage will come in different forms. One thing that yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I don't know how well batteries work in hot or extreme uh, climates. You're probably more up to uh, to date, but that's not the only form of the storage. Far from mm. it. And so uh, well, it seems to be a, a nice synergy. We've talked about hybrid schemes, and uh, if you've got the terrain uh, for hydro, uh, often forgotten as a, as a useful mm. thing, SSE we used to call it uh, kind of a liquid battery type of thing on an epic scale, and it, it could mobilise it very, very quickly. So that's an interesting one. And are there other countries, do you think, likely to follow uh, suit? I mean, India's uh, one of many countries that seems to have the space, yeah. and uh, from what you're saying, it seems to be consented as well. If it's through to the power purchase agreement, and it seems a very long uh, commitment 25 years it seems uh, double and treble some of the ones uh, around there so there must be great confidence for degradation of the uh, of the equipment yeah competitive auction um yeah i mean there's a whole bunch of countries south africa has a tender i think is currently out there which is for um uh, firm capacity again looking at renewables with other and that includes the ability to kind of hybridize i think that even includes the ability to include sort of bundled together more than one renewable plant um, as a, if you like, as a virtual power plant to provide security as a, yeah. a supply as well. So yeah. 
it's i mean you're seeing it as i say quite a lot in the in the southwest of the states has been a lot in california yeah. arizona and places um but it's interesting that you're seeing the kind of whole thing spread out australia there's quite a bit of solar and storage um, being talked about as well so yeah. just as a general theme i think this change <coughs> from renewables just being uh, and it a lot of it's solar because the uh, the the time shifting is kind of easier it's just kind of day <laughs> middle of the day to evening peak but you could start to include wind in that but the idea that instead of them just becoming power plants which are variable and, and it's going to come in i guess <clears throat> we're going to talk about grid balancing as one of yours um instead of them just being a kind of something that you put onto the grid that other things have to adjust around it's the idea that now they start to be things that you put onto the grid that can actually um <clears throat> help they can balance the grid um they can dispatch to a certain extent over certain time scales as well so it just again once you get to that stage the the growth potential becomes much more because there reaches a point where if you're just piling more solar onto the system and it's all producing in the middle of the day and it peaks in the evening you actually create more problems than you solve potentially but a bit of shifting and it doesn't have to be hours and hours it can be three four five hours and a lot of those problems melt away so as a general trend i think that's that's going to be one that will it's kind of set now and i think we'll just see that expand um, over time as i say it's mostly solar and storage but it'd be interesting to see how much wind and storage uh, we also start to see yeah thanks uh, for that one is there anything else you want to say on uh, that one we'll watch that uh, that indian situation and indeed the associated countries with uh, with interest it's all part of the energy transition and a very interesting part of it and uh, obviously if you're an invest thinking about investing in coal you might take a, a step back on that basis <laughs> yeah i think i mean as i say the indian one was that was an example that stuck out to me because just because of, of where it was rather than we often think about these things in kind of if you like developed markets rather than developing growing markets but as a i think the things to watch are, or as you say it's um it's other types of storage there are other types of battery i mean most of it's lithium-ion at the moment but there are other types of battery that are better suited to as you say things like hot climates um there was a example in i think it's abu dhabi where they've installed sodium sulfur batteries um for some grid balancing stuff so there are other technologies out there there are there's there's pumped hydro where you can do it but then there's there's various other things around this all sorts of storage technologies there's cranes lifting concrete blocks there's kind of liquid air storage i mean there's a whole bunch of different yeah, yeah. And perhaps it neat, rather rather neatly brings us on to perhaps grid uh, balancing we yeah. have uh, talked uh, about we do have a, a podcast on uh, on grid but uh, if you're thinking about i mean the, the grid i suppose it, it's the electrical grid more or less works in real time it was always said in wind farm school that uh, one of the quirks about an electrical grid and I think that's what we're referring to in the short run. There's obviously a gas grid as well. But the electrical grid uh, produces electrons, uh, which are used in real time. So uh, if you want to um, balance the grid, you must be aware. And I think people were watching Coronation Street timings for the adverts and working out when people put uh, kettles on for uh, peak demand because you don't want blackouts because you've not anticipated that. So there was a bit of an art uh, to the balancing side. And it's not the massive, but we are, there was a whole heap of um, tech in the background to make sure that that demand they would talk of spinning reserves and oil and gas peakers coming on and all kinds of things to make sure that the grid didn't fall over at the half time break of uh, of coronation street is, is that still the case or is, is the new tech coming on, on on board and new innovation that can perhaps think of a, a different solution uh yeah there's plenty of new tech coming on board again you could look at um at solar <coughs> um 
for things like frequency control, there's this mis um, there's the thing called inertia, which people um, often talk about, which is your great big spinning generators, <coughs> tens or hundreds of tons of spinning metal, um, if you, which has inertia, has mechanical inertia, and that's something that helps keep the grid frequency in balance if there's a if there's a dip in frequency on the grid. And that traditionally hasn't been something that obviously something like a solar farm or a wind turbine has because they <laughs> attach electronically rather than you're not directly coupled to some massive spinning metal. Um, but you can you can get around that. There are things that's what we call grid um, grid tied inverters um, through the electronics. Now um, you have electronics that can actually help keep frequency up if there's a problem in the grid. So provide what they call you'll hear people talk about synthetic inertia or virtual inertia. Um, there's a the Tesla battery in Australia that people might be aware of that was upgraded um, just recently. They added another 50 megawatts um, onto that battery, and that's specifically to trial synthetic inertia in the Australian grid. And if that if that works, and there's no reason to think it won't, um, then it removes the need for some of the gas um, generation that they've got, which would traditionally provide that inertia. So so yeah, and um, there was. There was an example here in it was SSE. We're installing basically like big flywheels um, to provide inertia as well. Yeah. So it's a slightly different solution, but not not having to have a whole big thermal power plant to do it, but just have a specific device that basically provided um, things like that. So so yeah, there's a whole bunch of um, thing technologies that that yeah. can help to remove the need to have big thermal plants provide these these services. Yeah. I'm thinking of the UK scene particularly. I mean, if you think of grid, I think there've been various um, innovation uh, competitions. I can think of one re revolving about uh, batteries a few years ago, and that seems mm. to have gone pretty pretty well. And now uh, people are mentioning could hydrogen be used? <laughs> would that would that be a route to market? Because um, obviously the prices, uh, people can't quite get um, some of the business cases. Uh, it's not always easy with regard to some of these expensive uh, new, new uh, uh, products. But people are starting to look on the electrical grid. Could you mm. utilise? hydrogen fuel cells possibly and some who knows what how you would design it perhaps you put something in near major substations and i suppose that uh, batteries are already doing that i think uh, some of mm. some of the grid is already designing in uh, battery arrays next to uh, substations to do just that for the grid balancing side so you don't need vast amounts i suppose you're not matching yeah. the, the capacity you just need a few percentage just to smooth uh, things over and if, if you do your sums right and, and you're clever uh, perhaps and a grid does seem to be reaching out for innovation and technology and it seems to be reasonably flexible in what it will consider so would there be role i suppose um for hydrogen in, in that scenario well there are companies um there are some projects and there was a pilot project called high balance which actually just finished recently or, or completed its pilot um <clears throat> testing where they are running electrolyzers in a flexible manner they're ramping the electrolyzer um, up and down um, in a way that means that they can they can help balance the grid, so they get signals from the grid to ramp up and down, and the, and they can do that because the electrolyzer is just a load on the grid. It's it's demand response effectively, um, in the same way that battery can ramp up and down, uh, can discharge or or charge in in demand response to signals on the grid. And if you've got the right sort of electrolyzer, and at the moment you're mainly talking about PEM electrolyzers can ramp up and down very quickly, then, then yeah, potentially there's revenue streams to be had for doing that. So, I, I mean, I, I, again, I suppose that would have, that would have been a, a good general trend as well, is really that's a change from having to provide all this grid balancing stuff from big centralised plants to being able to provide it from 
multiple smaller sources <clears throat> around the grid. It's kind of going from centralized energy to distributed energy again, but but from a grid balancing point of view. And it's and it's great for grid system operators because it means they've got more choice. There's more competition. <clears throat> and and actually what's happened in, in markets with things like batteries is the prices have actually been driven down as a result. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to say about grid uh, balancing? It seems like a very good news story with a lot of excitement and a lot of innovation around it. And uh, yeah, it, it was one of, was it one of your points? Do you have an, anything specifically around that? No, I was just thinking of the of the, of the wider um, grid balancing uh, picture. Obviously, the grid going forward. We've already said that in a an existing um, uh, podcast that the grid going forward isn't going to be the same necessarily as the grid going uh, back. And you might have people talking about smart grids and distributed grids and uh, and the balancing aspect. But it seems to be like um, a very innovative space, not always been associated with the mm. uh, electric, electric one, and one worth, worth, worth tracking. So uh, we'll perhaps see what happens in, in, yeah, in the coming uh, months. I suppose the only thing to add on grid balancing, if you were looking for trends, would be um it's different time scales so i mean those time scales in balance of the grid anything from kind of sub second to tens of seconds through to days weeks months and then a capacity planning for years ahead um some of the short time scale stuff is very it's been moving very very quickly um and i think what you'll find in terms of innovation and in terms of market need if we really want to start turning off um thermal plants and getting towards this kind of notional 100% renewables, if you like, um, you do ultimately have to start addressing some of the longer term stuff, kind of long term storage or long term balancing. Yeah, and that kind yeah. Of thing. yeah. And of course, we haven't really touched upon the gas grid. Perhaps that's another podcast for another another day with a whole heap of uh, of things happening in that sector. So we, 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 yeah. but I think for every, uh, every unit of electricity used in the UK, I think three of gas are mm. used and yet we here we are just blithely talking about grid as though it's been an electricity grid when there's actually several types of uh, grid but that's another discussion for another mm. day would you like to choose one of your uh, themes <laughs> okay so i've done one of them uh i should do for the second one um i suppose maybe following on from that kind of thing uh maybe go for the eu energy integration strategy now that was i remember on it was july the 8th i think was the date <laughs> dredging back into my memory bank um, and there was lots, there was lots of excitement. It was, it was strange actually, because it was at the kind of, well, we arguably still in the height of the kind of hydrogen hype. But there was <laughs> what came out on that day. There was the hydrogen EU hydrogen. Yeah, the, yeah it was, everything was coming out in July. Yeah. The EU. So these two documents came out, and and most of the coverage seemed to focus on the on the hydrogen strategy because it had very, they had kind of very bullish targets and big growth targets and so on. Uh, on the same day, though, came out. EU energy integration strategy, which actually, if you were to read them, you'd be better off reading the integration strategy first and then the hydrogen strategy second, because the hydrogen bit kind of is a subset of the of the integration side. And it was interesting, the, I, I guess the main, <clears throat> the most important kind of fundamental change about it was not kind of some of the detail within it, but it was the fact that it talked about quite rightly, that previously we've kind of treated heat, transport, electricity as kind of separate vertical sectors with very little, with no kind of overlap between them really. So you've got separate supply chains, separate um, kind of product supply strategies and end uses and all that kind of stuff. There's been, whereas if you want to go forward with decarbonisation and smarter systems, 
it makes a lot more sense to have to start blurring the boundaries between those those different things and, and integrate the, the energy sector together so you can have the same kind of energy vectors if you like for power heat and transport and and then obviously following on from that it and you, and you can manage them more smartly so if you want to have demand response for example to balance the grid if you can if transport can provide some of that balancing for example by turning up and down electric car charges at certain times then that helps make the whole system uh, cheaper more efficient hang together more sensibly so that that was it, that was my as a key takeaway even if you didn't delve into the detail i think that kind of direction of travel was important um in terms of the detail uh, then I guess the other main takeaway was that there were kind of three elements to it. One was was efficiency. <clears throat> if you're going to uh, go down a decarbonisation path, it's always going to be easier if you use less energy in the first place, <clears throat> which is kind of obvious, but often <laughs> I think from an industry point of view is not necessarily the message they want to hear because they like... Yeah, it's it's not very exciting to go around to somebody and say, oh, I've turned my dial down 10%, mm -hmm. is it? It's not as exciting as a 330-metre wind turbine chuntering away in the... Mm -hmm. uh, in, and in also from a business point of view, if you're in the business of selling more stuff, <coughs> selling more <laughs> infrastructure, or even if you're a bank and you're in the business of making money from funding more infrastructure, then <laughs> using less is not necessarily <laughs> a good sell. But that was that was a key blank. Uh, then electrification was kind of the next. If you can electrify it, it's more efficient to electrify it. And then, but then within that, there are things that are difficult to electrify, going to be challenging to electrify. Um, and cheaper to use molecules still. And so that's where not just hydrogen, but also biofuels were still in there. I mean, we've talked about this before, biofuels five or six, seven years ago was the kind of was a the kind of big hype. And then that's kind of died off a bit when people started to worry about the source of them. But yeah, that yeah, we had a good chat, didn't we, with Ryan strategy. a few weeks ago. That was very well, informative. Yeah. <laughs> And the third third element of it, uh, John, what was the third element of the uh, of the strategy? Strategies went out of fashion, I suppose, didn't they? In the 1970s, everybody used to have strategies, and then they went out of fashion. And, oh, no, we'll let the market decide. All this joined-up stuff, it never happens. Uh, we'll, we'll chuck it in the bin. Uh, and then we saw with industrial strategies and others retrieved from that very same bin. Not being honest, and that <laughs> <laughs> it happens all the time. <laughs> and, yeah, so and the the, uh, efficiency first, electrification where you can electrify, and then molecules. Hydrogen, the molecule, hydrogen, yeah, and obviously you can see how. That would, and yeah. so then, and the hydrogen strategy then follows on on from yeah. that. <clears throat> so. And so that I think, and that that was a kind of a significant kind of message in terms of at least from a European point of view where they see things going forward. They produce, I see this week they produced another strategy. They've just produced their smart mobility strategy, which I've not read yet, but I guess would we'll delve into more detail on on kind of where the mix of electrification and and fuels might might come in. But I can't comment on that. <laughs> it's certainly been a good year if you're writing strategies. I wonder, yeah, yeah. sometimes I'm so cynical, I wonder whether somebody's written a kind of catch-all strategy template and then just people pick and mix and say, oh, well, we've got this in resource in our country and we want CCS and we've got oil here and you just pick the relevant bits out of the paste it. <laughs> <laughs> certainly, if you're onto growth industry, I would have thought writing strategies must be uh, must be one. Is there, is there anything else that's caught your eye on the industrial strategy, which is an effort at joined up thinking with new phrases like sector coupling and all this kind of stuff that emerges? We never used to talk yeah, to, uh, yeah. well, to agriculture and people like that, but now they're central to it. <laughs> I mean, I suppose, and I think that's why this kind of integration, the idea of, of having an integration strategy in the first place is 
almost as important as kind of the detail of of how you do it, but just the fact that you do blur the boundaries between different sectors. I think it also what it leads to is it ties in with some of the things we've talked about in terms of industrial clusters, for example, and and having hubs. <clears throat> so if you're going to do electrification, might be the kind of widespread bit, but there might be certain certain localities and kind of regional or, or high energy use sectors where actually some of the molecule stuff, the hydrogen stuff, or even the biofuel stuff um, makes sense in a, in a kind of regional setting, even if it, it's not a kind of mass setting. So uh, I don't know, as an example, I think the idea of any time in the foreseeable future, having hydrogen blended in with the entire nat natural gas network nationally is kind of for the birds, but there might be specific clusters and hubs where it makes sense to do some yeah. some blending yeah. or some even some 100 percent hydrogen network yeah. just on a yeah. local basis yeah uh, so it will happen organically it will happen with the we've talked about clusters elsewhere and there might be some smart moves to get that one uh moving so that's uh do you want to raise your third point at this stage or do you want to go to uh, to... let's go to one of yours okay uh, well the last one on mine was one i've been tracking obviously on uh, on, on scotchwind and uh, things have happened organically up in scotland we had um, the high wind which is performing very well certainly from a capacity factor for equinor up off the coast of aberdeen but there are other schemes up in uh, the northeast of scotland and some of these schemes were always pushed to the back because of the deeper water. And now they're coming back. And that revolves around floating wind. <clears throat> so we know that high wind has been uh, a big success. Uh, but these, some of the floating wind schemes are much, much bigger schemes. And they're now being incorporated with the production, fully enough, of hydrogen. Now, there's one called Project Dolphin. And um, I've noticed that these schemes always have big H's and big Y's stuck in the yeah. middle as <laughs> part of the hype, <laughs> if you might uh, say. So it's called Dolphin, spelt in that weird way. But uh, the bits that are in the public domain are, are perhaps only the part of a, a, a much bigger uh, picture. And I think it might sit behind the King Cardine turbines, which are already there. And so um, behind that, and why would you put it in, in, in stages? Well, you might get support if you get certain machines in at a certain time. You might find that that support is enabled and that enables you to kick on with a much bigger scheme. And bits sometimes these schemes, they start in little small, almost trial couple of machines here. You think, well, that's not much of a commercial thing there. And then you see something else come behind. I suppose um, you'd like to think that the developer knew from the outset that it was a much, much bigger scheme, or they might just be pushing away and then incorporating new tech. But I suppose the interesting thing on Dolphin is that it's, uh, I think the electrolyte, I mean, I've seen various drawings of various scenarios, which you always get, it's iterative, but some of them do involve the electrolyzers being placed offshore. Mm -hmm. um, you would have thought the old shell mantra was always to do, they always used to call it on the beach, you always do everything on the beach that you can. Why? Because it's easier, it's cheaper and all the rest of it. But here we are from Project Dolphin. So not are you going to have floating wind? Is it all going to be electrical grid? Is none of it going to be electrical grid? Or... Is it going to be electrolyzer sighted offshore? And presumably the offtake, I mean, presumably you get some kind of vessel or reconstituted pipeline that would then connect up to this thing and take off the produced hydrogen to export. So it would actually probably not, not even come possibly to the local uh, port. We'll wait and see how that transpires. So what are your thoughts on that scenario? So we're moving ahead for a relatively new tech, which is floating wind, combining it with another new tech, or which is, I suppose, um, offshore wind and hydrogen, and then another new tech in there moving. So it just seems to be quite a high level of, uh, of innovation on it. Uh, it's not yet built, but it's mm. one I'm, I'm tracking pretty closely. But what where, are, I mean, where, are we, uh, where are we on scale with floating wind? Yeah, well, 
<laughs> yeah, there's not that much in the UK. We've got, we've, we've, moment, isn't it? It's, yeah, we've got that high. There's that. Um, there's the oil and gas one, Tampen. That was perhaps the next one that I, I saw. And then other countries. It's now going exponential again. Other countries from nowhere are starting to really ramp up. The big one to watch, I suppose, for UK is, is the Scotswind um, uh, round, where floating wind was always integrated. I was involved in some of the discussions a couple of years ago in Edinburgh. It's also reversed its way in cleverly into the round four thing that uh, round four has been slightly delayed but one mm. thing that they did announce is that uh, there's there schemes off south wales erebus there are teams off uh, of cornwall uh, and those are almost being shunted in backwards reversed into uh, the round four existing leasing round so i think the uk again seeks to be a world uh, leader but um, the tech is happening everywhere i think there's stuff going up in the canaries obviously for norway for uh, obvious reasons deeper waters and slightly and there's different forms there's 40 odd different types of uh, mm. kits some are like semi submersible some are these spa types uh, so it does seem to be gaining traction like right. everything else it needs scale to reduce but here we are um, people are thinking two or three new technologies combined floating wind and hydrogen and hydrogen offshore and possibly even offtake all being done offshore uh, and this isn't fanciful. This is Project Dolphin, which is already the first phases are already being uh, built. So I think the bigger piece, I think I read a 20 turbine by two, it's a big 400 um, uh, megawatt scheme. So it's commercial size with a whole heap of new tech integrated. So um, I'm watching that one with interest. Uh, I'll wait and see what the finalized design is rather than the three or four scenarios I've seen to date. Uh, and then behind it, of course, other countries are watching with great interest, so it's not just one in itself. If they get that template right, um, then it could be of great interest. Elsewhere on floating wind, I think Shell are acquiring countries, Steesdal, people like that are starting to be integrated into the big oil and gas developers. So I do see a, a big trajectory, and the one I'm watching there particularly is Scotwind, which is 10 perhaps gigs uh, with, with a lot of it. Uh, uh, floating, yeah. but th thinking of the uh, of the bankability side, because you've got three or four levels of risk. Um, so you've got floating offshore wind, you've got um, offshore uh, production of uh, of hydrogen, and then the offtake element as well. So I mean, if you if you're looking at that from a detached investor point of view, you might want to uh, to do some additional perhaps due diligence on, mm. on, on, on elements of it. Yeah, I can't remember the name of the project, um, but there was one off the Netherlands, which was a gas platform. Yeah, where they, it's called Poseidon uh, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> where they're um, sticking a, I mean, it's only a megawatt, I think, uh, electrolyzer on that platform. Um, and that is, at the moment, it's not, in the pilot stage, it's not hooked into a, an offshore wind um, scheme, but the idea is that ultimately that would be the yeah, idea. Yeah, I think it's got, a, know, it's got a grid, hasn't it? There's, there's electrical grid to shore, I think, of, of Skavening. Yeah, and, uh, so at the moment they're getting the, the electricity from shore, but I think they're going to kind of simulate the um, the production as if it was a kind of variable supply, so that there's some cunning way they're going to do that. But um, but they were, they were producing hydrogen, and then they were going to just blend it in with the natural gas pipe, because um, it was similar pressure. So... Um, <clears throat> So yeah, that was that was an example of potentially using a, transitioning a natural gas platform. I, either, well, two things you do: either transitioning a natural gas platform and, and decarbonising the operation of the platform by using um, offshore electricity and then using hydrogen as a as a kind of balancing to be able to run the platform twenty four hours a day. Um, or alternatively, I guess if it's a platform in a declining field. Uh, you could just transit. You could instead of decommission the platform, as we've talked about, you could um, you could now start. You could get into offshore wind um, and use the platform as a as a hydrogen production platform and your existing pipeline to pipe hydrogen back to shore. So th I, there's a couple of strategies, I think, linking in 
I suppose that's going beyond just offshore wind to hydrogen, but that's offshore wind and existing oil and gas operations to hydrogen. Um, I, I would have thought in the short run, it, that kind of thing seems to me more likely than someone just building, a, if you like, greenfield um, offshore wind with, um, and then all the infrastructure either be that produce um, to ship hydrogen by boat or build a new pipeline to do hydrogen. I, th I think it's the kind of coupling with existing infrastructure. I think it's going yeah, to be. Yeah, and perhaps that was uh, underpinning my thoughts uh, perhaps at the start with the Gulf of Mexico, where there might be an awful mm. lot more uh, oil and gas platforms coming on uh, on stream uh, sooner rather than later. And obviously, yeah, you can uh, perhaps dodge some of the decommissioning elements if you were to use mm. them. Uh, for something else. But I think you raised something important there. Why would you build new infrastructure uh, when you don't have to? So I don't know whether Dolphin, I'm, I'm sure I saw some floating type <laughs> of electrolyzer rather than a platform based electrolyzer. But obviously, it's easy just to look at a drawing. It is mm. just that. It is a drawing. But it does show the trajectory of people's thoughts. Could it, mm. could it be done uh, on that basis? <laughs> yeah, well, again, that, again uh, I've. I've not read it, but there was yet another strategy. Wasn't there a um, European offshore energy strategy a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, I think that was a 25-fold. Uh, I mean, another, we look at the... I mean, we, we were in the middle of all of this. Every day there's another eye-watering uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> target, and you think, how the hell are we going to uh, uh, meet that from where we are? I think some of these targets do take a very low base, John, I think. So I think, yes, it did have a 25-fold increase, but it was like from a, a pathetic uh, uh, base, rather like the five gigawatts uh, target for, for hydrogen in the UK when, when I think we produce about 40 megawatts at the, yeah uh, yeah the low base things though is yeah. amusing I mean we bought yeah it's like saying we've got a second dog and 100% increase in the number of dogs that we have in the okay is there anything else you want to say about the splendid I, I love the names whoever's thinking of these names they've, they've gone yeah, yeah. up uh, uh, Poseidon and Dolphin and it's Power to X it's very yeah. very interesting to me so is there anything else you want to say about Project Dolphin before we move on perhaps to your final final kind of uh, uh, no I mean it sort of feeds in a little bit well not sort of indirectly in that we we sort of got on to kind of oil and gas expertise. Uh, so my final point was, I mean, there's, there's one or two examples, but the general point was what I'm seeing a lot of companies, not necessarily the big oil and gas companies, but kind of more startup companies who are exploiting um, oil and gas expertise and technology and bringing them to bear on kind of energy transition stuff. And there's a couple of interesting ones that have leapt out this year. One, uh, in, in the sector we've looked at in, in hydrogen was a company called uh, what they called um, proton technologies um, who are have got this kind of weird sounding um, process of actually producing hydrogen in the ground so instead of bringing um, hydrocarbons up to the surface and then reforming them at the surface to produce hydrogen they're actually <coughs> pushing um, basically steam and oxygen down into the into the ground doing the reforming underground and then selectively getting the hydrogen out um, <clears throat> so again that's looking at things like um, oil and gas fields which well oil fields particularly which are end of life or are waterlogged or are just too thick and gloopy to be economic um, but again that's using it's kind of drilling technology in underground um, <clears throat> and controlling the process underground I think that that's there's a pilot project running at the moment in in Canada um, and actually they're they're come out of Calgary which is um, somewhere we know well and another another startup also from Calgary is a company called Evil Technologies 
uh, which they are they're looking at geothermal and what they're doing and this could be revolutionary in geothermal again it's it's pilot stage stuff at the moment so who knows um, but they're basically using horizontal drilling technology that comes out of oil and gas companies and and very this very kind of controlled where you can drill you could drill two wells in different places and then they can go horizontal and you can get them to meet up with an accuracy of kind of <clears throat> a few inches even though it's kind of two kilometers underground or whatever so all this kind of incredible and applying that to geothermal so instead of the traditional geothermal where you drill a hole get hot water out of the ground, turn it to steam at the surface. Uh, what they're looking at is basically producing, it's almost like producing a kind of radiator underground, drilling drilling pipes that then go horizontal. So you've got a kind of loop, you create a loop underground that then you feed, you feed fluid through from the surface and it heats up as it goes through the loop and then <clears throat> comes out the other end and you produce power from it. Um, so there's, so there's a couple of Intra, I mean, there seems to be quite a lot going on in Calgary. In terms yeah, of yeah, well, we were we were there, of course. I think there was a big Shell Innovation uh, Centre. I'm certainly getting a lot of calls on the consultancy side uh, from uh, from uh, that place. Is it so surprising, though, looking at, uh, I think, I don't, know if I don't know whether we've done a podcast on oil and gas and some of the other tech, but I mean, if, if you think, well, effectively, <clears throat> um, if you are skinning the game, they know about logistics, they know about weather conditions, they know about offshore, they know about big projects, they know about project delivery. And they're not scared. Scared. They know about moving toxic materials around. They know about canisters. They know about logistics. You, they, they bring a whole heap. They know about helicopters. They know about mm. double shift working. All the things that we're now coming to offshore wind and perhaps uh, hydrogen. Is it? Not, is it not? Is it, I mean, they're all pivoting across now uh, into, into net zero. Perhaps the American ones uh, accepted. So is it this for so surprising? That they say, well, we've got these skills. Let's do a skill mapping exercise and see uh, where these skills are going to be in 10, 15 years. And, and, and then perhaps find a good fit with some of the uh, energy transition stuff that we've been uh, talking about. This is our 40th, uh, by the way, our 40th podcast. Okay. I've been pretty <laughs> thorough <laughs> on, on some of the things that we uh, we talk about. Yeah, so it, sort of yes and no. It, it's you, you could say in hindsight, it's not surprising. I mean, I think it's important to, I think, recognise that these are kind of startups. They're not, it's not yeah. necessarily the big the big majors that are kind of doing it's com it's companies that are kind of saying uh, we know how to do this stuff because we've we've come out of the oil and gas sector or we know about this tech and they see the direction of travel towards lower carbon stuff and and they're looking at, okay how can we how can we how can we make money out of it but how can we use our our specific oil and gas technologies to to bear on on these things i mean there are some other i mean the other sector, which I think could be potentially big for oil and gas, is things like um, carbon capture and storage. So also this year, the, there's a thing called Northern Lights in Norway was approved, which is Shell, Equinor and Total, I think, um, for a kind of brand new um, carbon. Actually, the Northern Lights bit is not the capture, but it's the transport and then the storage, the putting the carbon under the, under the North Sea. Um, which is another example of kind of those those companies in that sector thinking well <clears throat> but i think what it shows is the increase in activity is it shows a recognition that this transition stuff is is, is not going to go away it's not a kind of inconvenience <laughs> uh, that's going to go away that they need to start um having a plan b if you like and they need to start on a personal basis that's that's good news for me and perhaps good news <laughs> for you as uh, as well yeah. we have uh, we have addressed 40 elements of the uh, uh, energy transition in the podcast and i suppose the uh, uh, if, if listeners want to suggest ideas that they might want, want to get up to 
to 50 and uh, beyond, let us know what you'd like us uh, to talk about. Is there anything else you want to say on that, uh, on, 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 the, on the oil and gas expertise? If you're a geologist and you worked for a seep or some element of, uh, of Shell, you might think, actually, now's a smart time to spark, start widening my rebit and just and think of energy in its widest term. I, I mean, uh, it, it's still part of the energy transition. It is what it says on its tin, and it might be wider than people have traditionally thought and bringing new elements in some of which we've discussed ranging from the internet of things to grid balancing to geological uh, skills some of which will be global in scope some uh, some yeah. not so i can see why I, I think what i think what's interesting about it is we're already i think we're just at the very start of that i mean the the geothermal one i think was particularly interesting i mean let, let's see what happens with the the testing and and, and whether it's as as, <clears throat> as good as they think it can be but um but geothermal has been a sector which has been traditionally quite it's quite slow growth it's fairly there's not there's been a few kind of tweaks here and there but there's not been a kind of real transformational breakthrough that potentially makes it effective and applicable anywhere so the idea of, of their thing is that you could do it in a lot more locations than you can do it now yeah. um, and so what i think is is potentially exciting about this is that when you get all that because these companies i mean they've got lots of very clever innovative people working for them if you can shift that brain power towards some of the low carbon problems then i think it opens up a whole bunch of um of opportunities and and things that um uh, and things that we could see that we can't even we've not even thought of yet so i think it's less kind of picking that the saying i'm not trying to say that those particular examples are, are going to be successful but i think it's just the fact that i'm seeing a proliferation of that yeah kind of okay we've come from the oil and gas sector but the future is yeah. the clean energy sector let's kind of put some of our thinking to solutions for that uh, that transition and I, and I think that i think that's important it's important for the companies because if they want to retain staff and younger younger staff i think there's numerous surveys that show younger younger people looking to work for big companies one of the things they take into account is kind of sustainability if they want to stay in business and attract the, the brightest staff they're going to have to yeah. give them things to do which aren't kind of pulling fossil yeah. fuels out the ground yeah. you, you watch the shell adverts it's all people working in ev charging stations and designing mm. uh, stuff so it's a very interesting situation to be is there anything else you'd like to add on that uh, before i think uh, i think we've covered six points in yeah. some detail i hope our listeners have uh, have enjoyed it so we perhaps we will be back in uh, 2021 so if uh, listeners will have, have suggestions for subjects they would like us to uh, to go to 41 and beyond we'd love to hear from you anything else you'd like to say at this, uh, no, this we've, um, we've covered the various trends um that i mean uh, as i say we could have picked we could have picked many many more but <laughs> kind of some pulling out some things that are maybe slightly different yeah. maybe not got the headlines that um that they deserve i think i think there's some good stuff in there and as you say i'm sure there'll be a whole bunch of stuff in 2021 that we've not even even thought about yet which will crop up and be important so now I think we can probably we can probably leave it there for now. Yeah, thanks thanks for listening, and uh, we look forward to hearing from you as as ever. And, and uh, season's greetings to our listeners as well. Yeah, thanks everyone, and um, yeah, I think we'll that'll be it for this year, and we'll we'll see you early in 2021. So enjoy your enjoy your break if you're having one.